Hi, everyone. Welcome to December 11, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Gazzutti. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment released their three-phase plan for distributing coronavirus vaccines. The first priority to begin this winter will be vaccinating healthcare workers involved in caring for COVID patients and those in long-term living facilities. The general public can expect to see vaccines by summer of 21 in phase three. Meanwhile, state officials are pushing back on requests from the U.S. Center of Disease Control to provide personal information on vaccine recipients. Pat Calhoun from Westward, we got our first glimpse at the rollout plan. Uh, phase three, at least there's no color coding, which is nice. What did you think of the rollout, and do you anticipate more changes to the three phases? I think we'll see little variations. For example, public television panelists. Oh, first, first group. No, I think we might get pushed back till next fall. Um, it's been, it's a little confusing so far. There was the whole snafu about were prisoners going earlier than first responders in Colorado. This seems to have all shaken out fairly well. And I think unless we run into snags in the supply chain or a run on vaccines, um, we should be okay. The question will be, will we have the anti-vaxxers responding like the anti-maskers? And I think we have the potential in 2021 for some fighting that way. But so far, Colorado's plan looks good. Of course, the first responders and healthcare workers, the most at-risk people, it seems pretty reasonable. Before I came here, I saw that journalists maybe should be up at the top. I would argue journalists can go with their level of people they're covering. I think that makes sense. Uh, David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Last week you had a great analysis about where the state needed responsibility-wise for prisoners. From this phase-out plan, will it meet, from what you could tell, that legal criteria? We'll, we'll have to see. And, and the, you know, my, my point about the, the prisoners was from a Supreme Court 1894 decision on budgeting, so it's, it's not an absolute legal rule, but it, it does seem fair that when you involuntarily confine people in a situation that's got a high risk of infection, that they, they would be higher on the priority list. But, you know, for all of us, this seems like it's coming kind of late. Moderna uh, received the genetic sequence for the SARS-CoV-2 virus on January 13, and they produced their first vaccine batch on February 7. So how come it's taken from February 7 almost a year before anybody's actually getting the vaccine? You know, suppose that from February onward, people could have chosen to take that vaccine and they would have had to be warned and accept that the side effects are unknown and, and could be fatal, perhaps. And they would have had to uh, accept that the effectiveness of the vaccine hadn't been proven. And so taking the vaccine back in February or March or June would have been a risk for sure. But some people would have chosen to accept that risk. But nobody was allowed that choice. And in the months it's taken the federal government to move at warp speed, we've got 300,000 people dead and many, many more suffering long-term, perhaps permanent effects. Some of those people might be alive and healthy if the federal government weren't a chokehold on medicine. And David, I think you raised an excellent point. Eric Sonderman, political analyst and columnist with Colorado Politics. We go to you remotely. Eric, the state's in a tough position to come up with the plan, but this three-phase plan seems to be received well. What did you think? Well, I read a story this morning uh, in The Atlantic. I thought the headline, Dominic, was right on point. The headline just read, the vaccine is here now for the hard part. And there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, obviously, from a scientific point of view, 
a lot of that heavy lifting has been done uh, in, in getting us to this point where there is at least one and soon to be more than one vaccine that uh, hopefully, presumably, is effective here. But the logistics now get incredibly complicated just with the number of doses that you need um, to inoculate, well, the whole country, but or at least those, uh, except for those anti-vaxxers, uh, as well as um, most of the world. Uh, and to do it in some rational, reasonable order that the public accepts, the public understands, the public buys into. So yes, uh, the hard part uh, lies ahead. The toll this is taking is just uh, unbelievable. Every day we are losing uh, the equivalent of what we lost on 9-11 and on other momentous occasions in American history. And that is now happening on a daily basis. So let's bring this vaccine on. Penn Fultate also joins us remotely. Penn, it's great to have you back. Uh, as a former state lawmaker, Penn, you know what state officials are going through when it takes to come up with a plan like this. How'd they do? You know, I think they did pretty well. I, I think the plan that, that Colorado's adopted is reasonable and fair. Um, I think Eric's right. The devil's in the details and the implementation is the hard part. The first thing we have to recognize, I believe, is number one, we still need to wear a mask and socially distance. Um, we need to be very clear that the vaccine is a first step towards a long-term solution, but it is not going to be a cure-all by any means. And we have to see what other pharmaceutical companies come out with vaccines that are acceptable. Um, two, I would not underestimate the, the size of the anti-vax crowd. Um, to David's point, because progress had been made on a vaccine so long ago and we were aware of the possibility the, the, the delay in the rollout and just all of the hyperbole and politics around it has large segments of the population skeptical, skeptical of whether they'll even get vaccinated. So we've got a long way to go. In other COVID-related news, Denver Public Schools announced a plan this week to resume, to resume in-person learning by February. Meanwhile, Colorado State officials removed all capacity limits for churches due to the recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. The state said worship and ceremonies like weddings and funerals are essential, but also encouraged social distancing and masks. David, uh, is the new policy from the state now in compliance with the Supreme Court decision? Uh, yes, it is. Under the governor's December 7th order, Houses of worship are classified as, quote, critical services, which is the same category as laundromats, uh, car rentals, or, or libraries. And the order specifically states that these critical, business, critical services businesses must comply with distancing requirements and all public health orders in effect to the greatest extent possible and will be held accountable for doing so. So there's no mask exemption for churches. There's no six-foot exemption for churches. What is removed was the arbitrary capacity limits. Like with other critical services, the capacity is how much room you have in your particular facility where people can stay six feet apart. As long as you can maintain distance, then additional capacity limits don't make any sense. And as the Supreme Court said, you can't apply capacity limits on churches that you don't apply to comparable businesses. Eric, you've had a comment or two about DPS in the past, so I'm interested in your take on the announcement from DPS making a decision now about February. I mean, that's two months ahead. What do you think? First of all, I think David did a good job of laying out the, the, the legal piece uh, and particularly vis-a-vis -vis churches, so uh, kudos to him. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis DPS, 
Uh, I have been critical. I'll probably be critical again. For right now, let me start by giving him some praise, not specifically related to COVID, but in appointing Dwight Jones as the interim superintendent, that was a strong move. Now the board needs to get out of his way, let him do his job uh, for the period of time he's going to be there and not micromanage them, micromanage him in a, a way that uh, many think uh, Susana Cordova was micromanaged. If DPS can pull this off, more power to them. I continue to think they should have had schools mostly open in um, in August and September with warmer weather before this spike inevitably came. But here we are. There is some new uh, intelligence out there, new studies, new data that indicate maybe they can get this done. Um, and the, the kids could would be the beneficiaries if they can pull this off. Pen a couple different angles here between the state announcement, uh, really in regards to the, the SCOTUS decision, but then also uh, DPS making this announcement. I can understand the logic between maybe getting past any sort of holiday spikes past Christmas, but you're also making a decision for what things might be like uh, nearly two months from now, which in this from what we've seen so far, it's very hard to predict. Uh, what did you take away from the decisions announced this week? You know, when I look at DPS and the decision they made, I, I look at it in the context of a number of other decisions we've seen in our society um, on college campuses and the resumption of, for instance, college football, which I am boycotting this year because I don't think these kids ought to be playing um, football with this um, uh, pandemic going on. Uh, and I appreciate parents wanting their kids to be in school. And, and heaven knows when my daughter was that age, I was fearful of her getting a quality education and not falling behind. But if your child falls behind academically, there are tools that we have in place that can help them get caught up. My concern is that if a number of kids, or even worse, if their kids and teachers become ill, or if we see some fatalities, I think that's gonna to continue to undermine confidence in the public school system, which has already been struggling with a bruised image um, as it is. I hope for the best. Um, I hope this all works out, but I'm still very concerned about putting kids um, in school full time. Patty, the whole idea of uh, in-person learning has been, you see a lot of different points of view from a lot of different schools, private schools doing one way, public schools doing the other, going back and forth. What did you think about the DPS decision? Do you think other school districts will take it as a cue? I think other school districts will think it's very brave, maybe foolhardy. I can't even figure out what I'm having for dinner tomorrow night, much less plan what's going to be in a paper the next week because information is moving so fast. So as long as DPS, they're looking to the future, you've got the vaccine, they're looking to help those kids learn, as long as they're prepared to shift again. How many times have we shifted on DPS's opening? As long as they're prepared to look at the numbers and change if they need to, good. Uh, let's also applaud a few other things that are opening. Museums around town, History Colorado, Museum of Contemporary at Denver, the Museo de las Americas, the Kirkland, you have smaller museums that are allowed to reopen. They got a variance. They, are, they too are social distancing. They too have very limited number of people who can come in with time tickets, but it gives people an option to leave the house, do something, do something that looks safe, and maybe help those cultural institutions. The Denver Police Department has agreed to implement structural changes after a 94-page report by the Independent Monitor pointed out excessive force, 
poor record-keeping and policy violations during the George Floyd protests this summer. Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin has agreed to implement 15 of the 16 changes proposed by the Independent Monitor. Eric, we go to you first in this one. What did you think of the report from the Independent Monitor and the response from the Chief of Police? Let me start with the response first. I thought the response was right. I mean, rhetorically and symbolically and stylistically, Chief Pazin is on top of it. Obviously, you know, again, to repeat myself from a previous answer, the devil is in the details. In this case, the devil is in the implementation. Uh, And it's one thing to pledge to enact all these reforms and all these measures. It's quite another thing to get them done and to enforce and require accountability on all the officers in the field. In terms of the report itself, uh, I think Councilman Paul Cashman put it best. He called it chilling. I think there was a chilling aspect or or chilling pieces of this report in in terms of the magnitude of of what didn't go right back during that those our summer of protests um and what has to go right the next time and you wonder if it will Penn, as we go to you uh you have uh, a great perspective on city politics you uh, ran for mayor just a couple of years ago in a parallel universe somewhere there is a mayor tate looking at this decision both from the independent monitor and chief of police and needing to make a call now that you're looking at it here what do you make of both coming out this week Well, you know, I I will applaud uh, Chief Pazin for uh, agreeing to adopt almost all of the recommendations of the report. And I think the independent monitor, which which I'm pleased to say was an office I helped create, um, uh, former Judge um, Alvarez and I, Alvarado and I, um, um, during the, the Hickenlooper administration. Here's the fundamental problem. It shouldn't have taken a 94 page report to highlight the shortcomings in the safety department and with law enforcement. Most of the issues that were identified, most of the the recommendations that were offered, many I think uh, border on common sense, but but I think a number of them are things you sort of took for granted that should have been happening and weren't happening. And Eric has hit the key point with law enforcement and with reform, the devil is always in the details. It is a humongous effort to get rank and file officers to change how they engage with the public and how they behave. And, you know, we saw a rash of lawsuits and settlements coming from this administration over the last 10 years. Uh, This report sort of shows you why that happened. Now the question becomes, now that the report has brought to light fully and completely, as, as Councilman Cashman said, the chilling situation, we need to understand the, the severity of the situation and the, the, the true need for comprehensive reform in law enforcement. Penny, it seems that Chief Payson's done uh, at least a, a good outreach effort as chief of police, but this really comes down to making changes with rank and file officers. Do you think he'll be able to pull that part off? He'd better be able to pull it off. What's shocking here is that we actually had a template ready for this. I mean, we do have also have a history of 10 years of racial injustice in various law enforcement authorities, but we had preparations for the DNC coming here in 2008. So after the George Floyd protests start rolling out around the country, we had a plan we could have pulled up. There could have been better communications in how to deal with things. And the fact that communications were as bad as they were is definitely a concern. The fact that we had to fly the Colorado State Patrol plane to Wyoming to get less lethal weapons, you know, throwing in the pepper balls, that was that was the most chilling thing I saw in there. Also, 
although Payson has accepted 15 of the 16, actually half of the 16th is something that was already passed by the legislature with the requirement on less lethal force. So we're pretty much all the way on those recommendations being accepted. David, what did you think of the report and also Chief Payson's acceptance, quick acceptance of the report only a day or two after it was released? Well, I, I would just say, if you know how to get to that parallel universe where Mayor Tate is in his first term and President Romney is finishing his second, there's a lot of people who want to go there. <laughs> um, I think the, the specifics of the report made a lot of sense. For example, police and all police in crowd control situations should wear body cameras and should always have visible badges. They revised the standards to make pepper ball use uh, more, more restrictive. Um, and they also, besides had some more recommendations for things for the Denver Police Department just to consider uh, on its own with with various stakeholders. Uh, For example, talking about Patty's communications problem, that was affected the police as well. They didn't get good communication. The radio channels uh, were so full that they just had one radio channel, and so lots of uh, unit commanders were were cut off uh, from guidance. Uh, for a lot of the time. And also, the Denver Police Department needs to substantially increase its investments in crowd control and field force training to properly prepare officers for the possibility of other mass protest events in the future. In other words, more riots are going to be happening. What happened this summer wasn't a one-off, so the Denver Police Department needs to prepare and train. A lack of housing resources continues to be a challenge in Denver, and the debate about how to handle it continues. Creative yet controversial solutions have been proposed by local housing organizations, including a women's tiny home village that hosted its first residence last week. Denver's first sanctioned camping area opened earlier this month, with a second one set to open by December 17th. Penn, we start with you on this one. It seems that private or at least you know, private-public partnerships are getting it done with smaller ideas, and it seems to go also with a little bit more increased security. Or is this the model that is going to at least help address this issue? You know, Dominic, this is part of the answer. And part of the problem is, um, since you talked about the election previously, since the last election to now, Basically, a year and a half, two years has passed, and and the city's done nothing uh, to deal with these issues. All of these community-based organizations have cried out for resources, have cried out for modifying governmental systems so that they can expand their capacity, and little has happened. Yes, during the campaign, a number of us talked about needing secure outdoor sites. I'm glad to see it's finally happened. It shouldn't have taken a year and a half. Yes, a number of us talked about the need for tiny home villages. We talked about a number of other solutions. What the city really needs to do is open this conversation up to all of the nonprofit and community-based providers and let them start proposing the best ideas and solutions. This is a population they're more attuned to and they spend more time working with than anybody in city government and begin to fund far more different options to address a growing problem. And the pandemic and its impact on the economy has just made things exponentially worse, but we are so far behind the curve. Just about every credible idea needs to be pursued at this point. Patty, if the city can't make more encampments encampments happen themselves, should they be putting more resources with these private ideas? 
Well, if they can't, and we've been trying to get a city's safe outdoor spaces open since April, we finally have the two that are opening this month, one just did this week, in churches. And even then, you still had some neighbors who were objecting, but neighborhood groups were really pushing hard for it. The first one is at 13th and Grant, I think 14th and Grant. That's just for women and trans individuals. The next one that opens up at 16th and what, Ogden, that will be for um, men. So we will have some. Aurora's actually kind of sped ahead of Denver in some of this. They've opened a temporary shelter. They're also opening a safe outdoor parking camp where if you have a vehicle that you don't want to leave that you could live in, you can park there and be safe and live in it. So that's that's getting ahead. We have to look at every possible option because there is not one solution. But the fact that we haven't tried a lot of these things yet is really damning. I will say the city has a new good program. The early intervention team, which is going out to small encampments before they become big encampments, and let's hope they get some response on that. David, from the outset, it, it feels to me like this is a private sector solution to something that the government has yet to come up with an idea. Uh, is it the way you see it? Well, one of the, the good things is what's going on at the Clara Brown Commons, the, the tiny house project at, at 37th and York, and that is a public-private uh, partnership led with Mile High Ministries doing the, uh, the, the private side of it. And it's named after Clara Brown, who was the first black woman to join the 1859 gold rush. And that was the, the very year she, she was emancipated. And so free, she made a deal to uh, work on a wagon train as a cook in exchange for transportation. When she got to Colorado, she opened the first laundry in Central City, apparently made some good money and, and saved from that, bought interests in mines, made a lot of money from that, was very charitable to uh, people around her and people in need. And so now there's a stained glass window of her in the state capitol. And she's a, uh, I hope, an inspiring example for all those down-on-their-luck people uh, who will be living in the Clara Brown Commons. Eric, we go to you. Wrap it up for us. Sure. I mean, I think we have to start with the fact that the voters of Denver, the generous voters of Denver, just passed a tax increase for homeless programs in the last election a month or six weeks ago. Obviously, that money has not yet taken effect. The tax is not yet ramped up. But the city is going to soon be sitting on even more money for these programs. I think it is fair to say that Denver is longer on money than it is on plans when it comes to homelessness issues. And for me, Dominic, I don't think we're ever going to get on top of this and really solve it or even make meaningful progress as long as we are treating the homeless as a monolithic population until we have programs and strategies directed specifically toward those who are homeless because of major substance abuse versus those who are homeless because of major mental health crises versus those who are homeless for financial and economic reasons versus those who just choose the lifestyle for whatever reason. You have to untangle this uh, this web if you're ever going to make meaningful progress. Well, it's time for a fair part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. We are saying a lot of goodbyes this year to longtime Colorado institutions, including El Chapultepec. They just announced this week that the family is leaving. They're not going to keep running it. I hope Evan Makovsky, the realtor who bought that property when Jerry Kranz died, keeps it going in some form. We almost could have lost the tattered cover. Good for a Denver team to step up and buy it. David, if you're in search of systematic racism, you need to look no further than the recent session of the Colorado General Assembly, where they passed a bill to help small businesses, but restricted a lot of the money only to small businesses of 
owned by people of certain colors, which is obviously very racist. And so a barbershop in Colorado Springs, which is hurting just as much as other small businesses from the pandemic, but the owner is not the right color, uh, has filed a federal civil rights suit. Eric, we go to you. Sure. The president's conduct and that of his enabler speaks for themselves. But let me go locally. Uh, I think it was touched on on last week's program, but this is the first time I've been back. Uh, Larry Liston in the state legislature and other Republican state legislators during the special session who were wearing masks on top of their head, who were belittling the importance of mask wearing, who were trying to make a joke of the thing, and in many cases were refusing to wear masks. The way this has become politicized and, 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 and just the insult to people who are taking this pandemic seriously and who are th- uh, whose lives are threatened by it. And there's an important backstory to Representative Liston. He actually had a mask and he lifted it up, but I'll let people dig into that. But overall, I'll get your point there, Eric. Uh, Pam, let's go to you. And actually, mine is a variation on Eric's point. Um, what, what Donald Trump and his enablers are doing, undermining public confidence in vaccines, in the need to wear masks and social distance, but also in fundamental governmental institutions like the right to vote and suing select states because they don't like the outcome. It's, I guess this is a fitting way to end his four years, but it's disturbing that it's taken such a bizarre and, and um, just um, um, scorched earth uh, approach. Time to see something nice about somebody, Patty. Colorado Gibbs Day, which was December 8th. Although we all are a little tired of the emails, the results were hard to dispute. Over $50 million was donated to Colorado nonprofits. You're here. David. The many excellent federal judges appointed by President Trump, uh, the Democrats said, oh, these are just partisan hacks. Quite the opposite. Some of these federal judges have heard these flimsy cases supported by the Trump brought by the Trump campaign, and they have all dealt with them in an appropriate, fair, and neutral basis, which is to say, unless you come in with some substantial evidence, you can't get anything from a court. Eric. Here, here to Patty's comment about Colorado Gibbs Day and all the money that was raised for nonprofits. Also, Chuck Yeager, what an American story, the, deep in the halls of West Virginia, high school diploma to become the supersonic pilot that really led the way to the space age before there was a space age. He passed away at age 97. What a life. And Penn, we go to you. Sure. Um, First, um, I'm on the board of the Community First Foundation, so I will say kudos to the foundation, but also to all the Coloradans in this difficult time who contributed over $50 million to all of these community-based nonprofits. Thank you so much. And it just shows the spirit that we have in in this um, state. Um, And lastly, I wasn't here for the shows a couple weeks ago, but I want to thank the Colorado General Assembly for getting in and out of special session and making a real difference to the extent they could to deal with this um, pandemic. I want to add my thanks about Colorado Gives Day. I want to thank everyone for uh, your giving to PBS 12 last Tuesday for Colorado Gives Day. Uh, Again, you were able to break a record for us with your generosity, and we're grateful. If you somehow missed Tuesday, which with all the emails, it'd be hard to do so, but if you did, you can still go to uh, coloradogives.org slash PBS 12 if uh, you're looking to get in on the fun.
I also want to uh, send a quick thank you to our friend, Mrs. Calhoun. Uh, thank you very much for the kind words about our Thanksgiving uh, programs. And I would be remiss if we didn't wish a happy Hanukkah to all of our uh, Jewish viewers and friends. We hope you have a wonderful holiday. That's all the time we have today. I'm Dominic Dizzuti. On behalf of everybody here at PBS 12, thank you for watching. Good night.